Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Kevin Teasley of the Greater Educational Opportunities Foundation joins us to tell us about his charter high schools that send students to local colleges to take dual enrollment courses, and in many cases, earn associate's degrees before they graduate. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a study that investigates how states' early literacy policies affect reading and math achievement. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. We need to know how these things are leaked. So. Yes. All right. That's We call that foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Kevin Teasley. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on. Kevin is president and founder of the Greater Educational Opportunities Foundation in Indianapolis, and he's here to discuss an effort championed by GEO Academies, uh, which we will talk about in a moment. On Ed Reform Update. Kevin, hey, first of all, congratulations to all of your <laughs> scholars uh, who are graduating right around this time of year, including many with higher education degrees, even though they are only in high school. Tell us some more about that. How does that work? Yeah, it's a kind of a, it's been a banner year for our network. We had 19 students earn full associate degrees before they graduated from high school. Uh, and, and most of the students, it, it's important to understand that we are open enrollment schools. We're in Gary, Indiana, one of the toughest communities in the country. We're in uh, some of the toughest parts of Indianapolis and in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Our goal is to break the back of poverty. And our goal is to produce students out of high school graduating on time uh, who are either ready to go into the workforce, get a high wage job, or go on into college and complete college, not just go to college, but actually complete college. And so when we started in 05 in Gary, Indiana, they had a 50% high school dropout rate, 50% on an annual basis, mm. high school dropout rate. So we were invited to go to Gary and try to change that <laughs> dynamic. And we went in, to be honest, with the same plan that you see most uh, college prep high schools uh, do. We talked about FAFSA. We talked about you know how much more, more money you're going to make if you graduate from high school, get an associate degree, go get a bachelor's degree, master's degree, et cetera, et cetera. How it escalates your income, the more degrees you get. The reality is... Um, I mean, if we're being honest, and I'm brutally honest, our, our results were not very good in 2009-10. We were just not seeing, I mean, we're seeing kids graduate on time, sure, but they weren't going to college. Mm -hmm. And you start wondering what's going on here, and you start looking at the families that we're serving. 90% of the homes that we serve have no college in them. 90%. So only 10% actually had any idea that they were going to go to college. And then when you talk to the kids, and I'm not making this up, I talk to the kids, why are you going to high school? The guys would say, well, this is where I can play ball. The girls would say, this is where my friends are. So basically it was kind of a social setting, at least in, 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 the, in the community I was serving in Indy and in, and in Gary back then. Uh, that's what I was getting. They were not saying, well, I'm getting ready to go to college. 
So we needed to change that dynamic and understand what's going on. And in fact, in 2010, we had a student, or 2011, we had a student come to me and said, he's going to drop out. He was a sophomore in high school. His name is Vincent Pena. Pretty good kid, smart kid. And the teachers were saying, hey, he, he could do college. So we went to Vincent, and I had been studying the early college model for a while. And back then, the early college model was pretty restrictive as to when you start taking college courses and how many courses you take. And um, But we have this kid who's going to drop out at age 16, and that's completely opposite to our goals. Yep. So I went to Vincent, and I said, look, I hear you're pretty smart. Uh, why are you going to drop out? He said, well, my family needs me to make money, bring home some bacon for the pay the bills. I said, I understand that. How about if we uh, go over to Ivy Tech, you take the college entrance exam. It's a three-part test back then. And if you pass one part, I'll pay for you to start taking college courses immediately. His eyes lit up. He's like, what do you mean? I said, yeah, let's go take it. I think you're going to pass. And he passed all three parts. Big mm -hmm. surprise to him. No surprise to us. And we turned around and said, Vincent, look, you're now a college student. And we're going to change our high school schedule, daily schedule and annual schedule for you to be able to take real college courses over at Ivy Tech on the college campus and get the support from our staff, our academic staff, our social counselor staff, so that we can help you be successful. Two years later, he not only graduated with his associate degree, the first kid in Northwest Indiana to do that, that was in 2013. He did that before graduating from our high school. We made a huge deal about Vincent doing this. We brought, we're a K-12 school, so we brought everybody into the gym. They all celebrated Vincent's uh, success. Well, we did that on purpose because we wanted to show other kids that they can do it too. If Vincent can do it, they can do it. So we turned it around and, you know, in the last 10 years, we've had over 60 students earn a full associate degree. These are kids in Gary, Indiana, hmm. where 90% of the homes don't have any college in them. And what's happening is these students are going on and completing their bachelor's degree, even their master's degree. And last week, uh, one of my students earned her PhD. This is a student who earned an associate degree while in my high school. So the whole point here is really not just to get these kids their associate degrees, but it's for us to do more with taxpayer dollars than tradition expects. Mm -hmm. You know, tradition expects you take a K-12 dollar and you produce a K-12 kid. Like most high school kids, including me, I went to public high school, graduate with just a high school diploma. Well, that's not good enough anymore. It's just not. And a lot of kids can do more than what I was able to do. Maybe I could have done college work back when I was in high school. But I know that kids today can do a lot more than high school allows. Right. So you've designed now your high schools and these charter networks uh, to be focused on this, to, to do a lot of uh, the college taking courses. Uh, my understanding is that you <laughs> find ways to free up the schedule so that they've got the ability to go do these college yeah. courses. And now you want to help other schools be able to do more of this as well. So tell us about this policy in Indiana that you helped to get through the legislature. And uh, yeah. I, I understand it uh, signed by the governor. Yeah, it was a, a big win this year because all of the things that we've been doing, we've been doing with K-12 dollars. One could argue that the K-12 dollars should be spent on K-12 education. And if you've got right. kids that are able to go off and do college, they should be able to, they should pay for that themselves. Well, we've been paying for it. And, but, and so we have roughly 50% of our high school kids taking college level courses on our dime. 50% are not. 
those 50% need remediation. We've been playing on the the game the game that, you know, the kids that are going to college are going to provide some sort of leadership and uh, incentivize other students who don't think that they're college that they they can do college. And so and that's that's worked. But, you know, every time I graduate a kid with an associate degree, that's at least $8,000 that we've spent towards that associate degree, at least 8000 that we could have been spending on remediation. So we've been arguing with the state uh, for uh, four or five years in support of a program that would allow some uh, incentive, basically pay for performance. If I produce you a kid that has a full associate degree, that's two years of college, can we get some sort of bonus from the state for that. And the state agreed to that. $2,500 per kid that we graduate with an associate degree. That's not the full 8,000, but it's $2,500 that we're, that's, I call it the starting point. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's see if we can grow it next year and the year after and the year after. But if we get a kid that graduates with a full year of college, it's $1,500 to each, each school uh, for each student that you graduate with a full year. We think this kind of pay for performance and will provide an incentive to schools to start funding more kids going and taking college-level courses. I think incentives work. And now it's it's interesting. And now I understand, though, Kevin, is it fair to say that there are some other states where they have figured out ways for the state uh, to pay for the college-level courses for high school students themselves? Well, I will say, at at least here in Indiana and in Louisiana, I'm not a national expert on what's going on uh, everywhere. But I will tell you that there are scholarship funds that are available for kids after they graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. So they they have to graduate. What we're trying to do is catch them before they graduate so that we can spend the high school years helping them understand that they are college capable, which then leads to them graduating from high school. I mean, our high school in Gary, Indiana, has roughly 98, 95% graduation rate compared to the other local traditional high school in Gary, which has like 68, 70%. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? We have a we have a plan in place where we're helping our kids understand that they can go to college. So in other words, if they're going to go to college, they got to have that high school diploma. But if you're not going to college, you don't have to have that high school diploma. Mm-hmm. That's the reason I think the other school has a lower graduation rate. No, and, and just so exciting with this notion, too, about you're trying to provide momentum for these students, right? I mean, you're showing yeah. them that they can do the work. Uh, and then after they graduate from high school, uh, it's not like on the next day they're trying to figure out college for the first time. They've actually already been to college. Uh, you know, you, some of them have completed a, a degree. Uh, others, maybe just a few courses, but they've got momentum. They get it. And they're in the my, system ready to go. You, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head. If you're a parent and you've got kids. And you try to teach them to swim. You don't take them to the swimming pool and throw them in the deep end of the pool and say, hey, good luck. Hope you can swim. That's not how they learn how to swim. You take them in the shallow end. You hold them. They start clapping their hands and Mm. kicking their feet. As long as they get stronger and stronger, then they get to go deeper into the pool. But when you apply that analogy to college, we graduate kids all across the country out of high school who have no college experience whatsoever. They don't have any time management skills. They don't have any self-discipline. They don't understand what a syllabus is. They don't know what a registrar's office is. They don't know how to build a schedule. They don't even know what they're trying to do. But we mm-hmm. just throw them in the deep end called college and say, hey, good luck. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, for the kids that we serve, which are pretty much all underserved, um, minority, low income, tough neighborhoods, 
they they just don't come from the background where there's experience uh, in their families to support them once they're gone. And so I will tell you at the Pell Grant level and here in Indiana, where they have this the scholarship for low income minority kids, primarily uh, who complete high school. These are full ride scholarships. Pell is free money. 21st mm -hmm. century scholar money here in Indiana is free money. And it'll pay for your tuition 100%. We only have a 50% completion rate. Yeah. So obviously having all this money is not the full solution. Money is not always the answer. You need to help these kids socially, emotionally, and academically Pick them up when they when they start to, you know, their knees start to buckle or they have questions or they have family issues, whatever it may be. We have to be there to help them. And that's what we are. We're there while we're there in our high school. And and it's important to note that you are actually sending them to the college campus that unlike some other schools that yeah. do dual enrollment. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the professors uh, who are sometimes high school teachers themselves yes. are teaching those courses on high school that, you know, we can debate the pros and cons of that. But yeah. Yeah. but you are very purposely making sure that these kids are actually there on the campus around college kids uh, having the full experience. Well, from a taxpayer perspective, we're getting more bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, we had students take 40 different college level courses. That's 40 different professors. If I had all 40 of those professors on my payroll, mm -hmm. we're talking three, four million dollars. I couldn't afford it. Then I'd have to start making decisions. Well, we're we going to have French or Spanish or German. I can only choose one foreign language because mm -hmm. my budget is so small. But with engaging the college campuses and what they offer, you can have what you want, Mike, and I can have what I want. Not to mention the other piece that I'm saving. If I had 40 different professors teaching those courses, I have to have 40 different classrooms. That's a lot of facility expense. I don't do that. It's already there. The colleges already have the, the classrooms. They already have the teachers. And if, our, if we're doing what we're supposed to do, which is get our kids ready for college, and that's what we do, mm -hmm. then shouldn't they be over at the college <laughs> as quickly as possible? And why do they have to hang out with us until they're 18? Literally, Mike, I've got a 13-year-old who earned a full associate degree. 13. He started at age 11. Uh, he's going to have his bachelor's degree. He's the youngest kid in Indiana to earn a full associate degree. He's going to be the youngest kid in Indiana to earn a full bachelor's degree by the time he's 15, before he gets his driver's license, by the way. <laughs> love it. I love and, it. And, well, he's, and he, he's getting this on taxpayer money. Ah, uh, so it's such great stuff. Well, I really appreciate Kevin. Uh, again, Kevin, who is the CEO of GEO Foundation and Academies. People can learn more about the Academic Performance Grants, which are there in Indiana. You go look that up. Uh, one of the creative ways that states are figuring out uh, how to pay to have kids while they're still in high school do college level work, get credit for it, and get momentum towards college success. I love it. I love it. Love it. Again, Kevin Teasley. Hey, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. So, okay, I got to say, uh, we are getting close to finishing succession. We're a little behind, uh, but uh, I, I can highly recommend it. it I wasn't sure at times, but it, it is... I've now decided quite the amazing show. Have you been watching? I this have part? not. Give give me the blurb. 
oh, oh, you'll love this. It's basically a take on the Murdochs. I mean, they don't quite ah. say this, but this is a, a family uh, with a lot of dysfunction, a lot of question about who's going to take over when the patriarch, uh, you know, hands things over. Ah. And, uh, and you know, they run a Fox News-like uh, TV station and a bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff. You know, they're based and they're billionaires. So uh, <laughs> right. there's a lot of gawking at their uh, <laughs> you know, lifestyle. And including, what do they call it now? Uh, quiet. Quiet fashion. I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's basically that they're wearing incredibly expensive clothes, but nobody <laughs> would know unless you know about these. Sorts oh, of things. Uh, like I see. A, a $650 baseball hat with no logo on it. That's <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. I don't know what this says about me that you think I would just love this show. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the heart of it. No, I know. I know. Well, <sighs> the problem is, you know, when I, when I get around to watching these prestige shows, they have too much impact on me. Like, like when I watched Mad Men, you know, yeah. as you'll recall, I, it ended yeah. up, I, I, I had to like decorate. Get the bar cart. <laughs> in mid-century modern. And I got the bar cart. Yes. I would have never <laughs> thought to drink at work before Mad Men. Right. Should be some yeah. sort of. Patrilli content warning, right? Like uh, it's true. So now oh, I'm like, boy, man. I wish I could like take a helicopter to work and you know right? private jets all the time. Oof. That, that one yeah. I don't think is in the cards. So. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I I may or may not check it out, Mike. We'll see. All right. Well, I I'd um, highly recommend it. All right. Hey, all what right. do you have for us this week on the research? We have, as always, a new study. It is kind of tricky, but I will do my best uh, to get through it and not uh, not go on too long. It's out from Michigan State. Examines the effects of early literacy policies on student achievement. We know the science of reading has gotten all kinds of uh, revitalized attention. And states are talking about, you know, early reading policies and adopting them or expanding them or refreshing them. So this study looks at these early reading policies and says, are they affecting short term reading and math achievement? Does it depend on particular policies or groups of policies? And do they affect the economic and racial test score gaps? They're using three sets of data. This uh, cataloging of early literacy policies that Excel and Ed has um, completed recently. They have 16 different policies in that uh, sort of inventory. Uh, it's looking at things like science of reading, training teachers, making sure parents know when their kids are falling behind in their reading. Then they use CETA data to measure academic outcomes across states. And then they use NAEP data to examine average performance across states on national reading and math tests at fourth and eighth grade, because they're curious whether any of these outcomes might differ, whether it's on a quote high stakes test, which they're assuming the state tests are, or low stakes NAEP test. Mm-hmm. All right. They use an event study design, leverages differences in the staggered policy adoption of these different policies and the content of these policies across states and over time. They satisfy the parallel trends assumption, mind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are also looking at states' average test scores several years before and after the passage of an early literacy policy. And they're looking at comparison groups of states that did not or did not yet have in place early literacy policies. All right, we got all that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. Sticking point. Since some states have amended their early reading policies over time 
and their database does not say exactly what was adopted when, they choose the earliest adoption date to define the treatment, and they interpret their results as intent to treat effects. So they don't have like, you know, treatment untreated. So states may or may not have these particular policies in place, not as precise as ideally we'd like it to be in terms of design, but anyhow, treated states have at least one policy in place and they passed it and maybe others before their last year of test score data in their analysis. So that's basically 2018 when you're looking at CETA data and it's 2019 when you're looking at NAEP. And then these comparison states are those that never implemented an early reading policy before these end dates. All right, I had to just go back and look because I'm familiar with this Excel and Ed thing. Um, and actually, so that means they left out five states that implemented policies in 2021. And there were two states that it wasn't clear whether they had policies at all versus they just couldn't find the legislation because that was the note in Excel and L. So Anyway, it gets a little messy, I guess, is what I'll say in terms of classifying the states. Um, I'll leave it there. Uh, and of course, we don't know about implementation because that's not part of the study. But anyway, they're comparing states with any early reading policy to those without. Then they're looking at third grade reading retention policies, states that have them and don't. And then they're looking at comprehensive policies. You have all these policies or you don't. Findings. Adopting any early literacy policy improves elementary students' reading achievement on high-stakes assessments, but those effects fade out by middle school. Hmm. Adopting comprehensive policies, so the, all of the 16 things, shows bigger and more sustained increases in reading scores ranging from 0.03 to 0.1 standard deviation that persists for several years especially when they include third grade reading retention requirements. And then they find what they thought were spillover effects into math, uh, but then they do a bunch of additional analyses and they think those gains were mostly due to the race to the top, which was occurring uh, around the same time. And finally, there were no significant increases in low stakes reading scores for the most part. So on NAEP, except in the states that had these really comprehensive policies of all 16 things. And finally, uh, uh, really, this is really finally, uh, suggestive evidence that early <laughs> literacy policies reduce these gaps, but not much in terms of the gap analysis. All right. Whew, really, I'm really am finished now. Wow. Well, first of all, I'm just impressed that they are finding any impacts from state policy, since the big question, of course, is whether the local districts are following those state policies. Right. And, you know, as we've said forever, right, that uh, education is an, uh, a loosely coupled train. You know, state policymakers mm -hmm. pull out of the station and the school districts uh, stay behind. They don't necessarily follow. Uh, it is always hard to get school districts to respond to state policy. Um, but it seems like there's something about these policies that are succeeding in getting districts and then schools and then teachers, perhaps, to change their practice. Unless there's some other explanation, uh, you know, that that would lead mm -hmm. to these results. Especially yeah. the reading retention, right? That was that kind of stuck out to me as, as being particularly important. Yep. Well, now that there's several studies recently finding that, including a new one in Ohio. And yeah, I mean. And of course, people always wonder, well, is that just because the kids are now older? You know, of course, they're going to do better on the test. And But, uh, you know, it it does seem like if you retain kids, provide lots of supports, lots of interventions. Uh, yeah, it makes a difference. More time is a good thing and more support is a good thing.
uh, these other policies. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think it's promising. I, I'm just mm-hmm. curious about, uh, you know, the mechanisms in between that. How, how is it that we succeeded or the state succeeded to get school districts and schools and teachers to follow these policies when they've ignored so many others in the past? <laughs> Mike, what else do you think matters most besides reading retention? Is it is it just like the uh, the ed schools or do you think it's what's happening in uh, professional development? I mean, where's your head well, at with this? I, I would think I mean, ed schools matter, of course, but that's such a long term play. Right. Because yeah, so mm-hmm. the teachers are new and that takes time. And so I doubt that's it. I don't know. I think curriculum probably matters a lot. I mean, you know, you, you do now see some states. Colorado is a great example where they've gotten serious about telling districts, no, you cannot use balanced literacy. Uh, You've actually got to use the science of reading. Uh, And they've enforced that. And you've got some other places that have done that as well. So I I think that is the big lever. Um, You know, it's the technology that teachers are using to teach reading. And if it's good technology aligned with the evidence, uh, you know, it's going to work better. How are they? I'm just curious, Mike, how are they enforcing these uh, in Colorado, do you, do you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I think they, uh, they've they made it clear to the school districts. I mean, they know what the school districts are reporting using. And right. if it's not on the list of approved programs, they say, you must change. <laughs> yeah, very, very stir, stern emails, yes. Amber. Stern very emails. sternly <laughs> worded email. Okay. I, right. I assume that there's some threat of withholding money. Money, uh-huh. Uh, but I, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, but yes, I'm sure they're, the lawyers are sending toughly worded letters. Oof. But it's worked, but it's worked. And, and you've got districts yeah. that are like, all right, we'll get rid of our Lucy Calkins program or, you know, Fontas and Pinnell, and we will actually adopt something that's uh, uh, in line with the science of reading. Right, and they've got a scapegoat, right? It's the states making us do it when, you're, when you're a principal, right. yeah. Did, did they yeah. have a sense, Amber, of which of the states, I mean, did you get a sense of, you know, wh- are there a few states you can mention where they really adopted a comprehensive policy? Uh, Is- well, they don't mention any, but, you know, I'll, if you look on that, you know, Excel and Ed database, uh, you know, shows you the, the checks across all of them. And uh, let's see, Alabama's one. Uh, Alaska's got a lot of checks, as does Arizona. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, I am to be very curious to fill in the gaps here to try to understand, you know, that what, what's happening at the school level uh, so that we we know, you know, between these policies and the student achievement. Maybe somebody should do a study about that, Amber. <laughs> maybe they should. That's, we need to know how these things are linked. So. Yes. All right. That's we call that foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> and we should also point out that uh, that one of the co-authors on the study uh, is an EAPS, uh, Emerging Education Policy Scholars, a program that we run for uh, rising academics with AEI. So uh, very that's, good. Uh, that, remind that's me of, of, of his name, John at Michigan State. Uh, Westall. John Westall. All right. Shout out to you, John. Good work. We love it. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.